Hello, welcome back. This is Alex Horton of Dirt Talk. Um, Aaron is traveling in California this week. He is has been there for the past week. He'll be there for another week. Um, and he is seeing as much dirt as he can. He spent the first week by himself out there g- going back to his roots of Buildwit, just driving around California looking for dirt. Um, but the second week, he brought out one of our team members, Matt Briscoe, to... Um, pick up the vlog. Aaron years ago had been working on a vlog for BuildWit and just with building the company that kind of fell to the wayside. So we're excited to get that going and and share that with y'all when the time comes. But for now, uh, I'm introducing our guest for this week. Our guest is Eric Selman um, from Mortensen Civil in uh, Minneapolis. Um, He's the vice president and general manager and um, it's, it's a great conversation. Him and Aaron get into a lot of stuff. A couple of the topics they touch on are civil engineering, um, general contractors, and Aaron's general dislike of them, and the importance of company culture over um, a product that would fly off the shelves, as Eric says. Again, this is Eric Selman with Mortensen Civil. Let's get to it. I really wanted to start with your background. You're at Mortensen now, but you had a very long career before that. So at what point did construction even enter the picture for you? How did you fall into the industry? You bet. So I was going to the University of Minnesota, majoring in civil engineering, and uh, I I had an internship with a local consulting engineer probably after my sophomore year local consulting engineering firm in the twin cities of minnesota and you know what they put the interns in is a lot on survey crews and a lot doing construction inspection uh they called it mm, construction administration but that basically you know cities and counties and the state would hire this consulting firm to do surveying on behalf of the contractor and also uh, construction inspection, quality control. So I did, I did that from after my sophomore, junior, and senior years in college. And I, I ended up almost always on McCrossin Project. Now, you know, McCrossin is an institution here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, 60-year-old firm, uh, over 60 now, I guess. And um, really tied to the region, they do uh, they do every they do every single aspect of heavy construction self perform. Yep. And, and I'll get into I'll get into more of that. It's really kind of cool how they evolve. But yeah, I was I was like a construction inspector and surveyor on the jobs. I got to know their people pretty well. Got to know their leadership and ownership group pretty well, and. One day, Tom McCrossin took me out to lunch, and he just said, Eric, you know, you engineers, I know you love to crunch the numbers, but those numbers get so much more interesting once you put a dollar sign in front of them. Why don't you, why don't you come and try construction? I think you'd really like it. And, and I did. I took him up on it, and it was the best decision I ever made. I just, I just became fascinated with the industry, and I ran really at Macross, and I got to learn about self-perform heavy civil construction. It was 
it gets in your blood and once you do it, you, you can't get out. That is such a fascinating way to look at it. You're just taking the numbers and putting dollars in front of them. And that is the world of contracting, which is right. totally true. Right. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to take that and start using you know, that You more. can use that, Aaron. Yeah, yeah I need to license that. that. It's a really good line. I think Tom actually got it from his dad, Charlie, who started the business. But it was a good line. They used it a lot, and it, it is true. Now, what? Um, why did you get into civil engineering? Oh, geez, good question. Good question. I thought... You know, when I was going to college, I wasn't a particularly, I wasn't a particularly um, dedicated student in high school. And my mom and dad both went to the U of M, University of Minnesota. And it was not just them, also a whole line of folks in my family went to the U. I always knew I was going to go to the U. I didn't even think of any place else. So, But I hadn't a clue what I was going to do once I got there. And, uh, let's see, once, once I got there, um, I, I started out in environmental engineering and I just didn't even know what that was. I thought environmental engineering would be, you know, saving the environment and having something to do with like, oh, water preservation and wildlife preservation. And, you know, I got to the U and I started to understand that curriculum a bit and it's nothing about it's nothing really about environmental preservation at least at the time it was all water and wastewater yep wasn't super wasn't super interested in that especially you know the water and wastewater as it relates to the plants and purification so I wasn't that wasn't my thing I took a statics class uh, probably you know early early my sophomore year and I just got hooked on that. I just thought statics was so cool that led to an emphasis on structures within my civil engineering curriculum. And, and that's what I thought I was going to design. I thought I was going to design bridges like that. That was my thing that I thought was really cool. And, you know, throughout those college internships, I did a lot of construction inspection on bridges and structures and walls and tunnels and and uh, yeah, that just that just captured my interest. It wasn't wasn't really about dirt. I didn't really even get interested in dirt until I was working at Macross and then just seeing how seeing how cool the big iron was, you know. Well, I feel like you don't know how much earth moving there really is until you get into the earth moving world. And then you're right. like, whoa, I, I think I've brought this up. And But Dan has said it multiple times lately. He's like, you said moving dirt. And I was like, okay, yeah, I kind of get it. But I had no idea what you actually meant until I started to see it. And now it's like, wow, you, you move dirt for everything. But until I started looking for it and looking at it, I had never thought of it before. Right. So it's really an afterthought, like especially in the world of engineering and construction, I feel like most people gravitate towards buildings because when you think construction, you think buildings, houses and skyscrapers and you forget about infrastructure because that's the point of infrastructure. You're supposed to just forget about it, but none of those buildings would work without infrastructure and without moving dirt. 
And, you know, so much of the construction management and even the few programs that have construction engineering, ASU is one, right? That has construction engineering? Yes, I went through their construction engineering program, yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. So, but most have a construction management program and it's very much geared towards vertical building construction as from the perspective of the GC, right? So yes. construction management, but where um, not from the perspective of the trade partner or the trade contractors, very much from the perspective of the GC. So a lot of cost management, schedule management, RFI, construction administration is really the curriculum, I think, of the construction management degrees that are that are so prevalent. And, you know, coming full circle, I just, just was invited to be on this advisory board for the civil engine civil engineering department at the U of M, and I'm a, I'm the construction I'm a token construction rep, and the idea there is that um, you know civil engineering grads are such a target of the heavy construction companies now, but there's very little there's very little while they're in that engineering coursework where they get exposed to heavy civil construction. So trying to make a link, um, trying to make a link between the civil engineering curriculum and then what you can do with that education once you get out. And a few schools really are, really, really do a nice job of that already. Iowa State is one, Arizona State is one, but um, I think that's going to be a big trend going forward is trying to make that connection. Yeah, and, and most programs are geared towards GCs because the GCs are the ones that pay for the programs, I've learned. You bet, you um, bet. And it's like, you know, the school Their construction. Their the buildings. Exactly, school construction at Arizona State is the Deli Web School Construction. So right. Deli Web, what do they need? They need construction managers for home building. And okay, sure. great. Uh, it, 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 it's all a game of money. And... You know, the, the big civil contractors, they don't just need managers. They need all sorts of people. So they haven't really stressed the need for kids out of college until now. But in the you GC bet. world, that's all you need is managers. And so where where's the best place to get those? Well, kids out of school. So let's just start throwing money at schools to make these programs named after us so that we get preferential treatment. It makes sense. Yeah, and a, a really intentional a really intentional and targeted presence at the career fairs. Yes. Really trying to drum up a lot of buzz and info and reputation about their brand for the big GCs at the career fairs. That's, that's really an important venue to an important recruiting source. Correct. Well, you go to Macross and, and you spent a, a, a you know, sizable amount of your career at that company. Yep. So you start. I love the place as like a lesser than manager, and what what did your career look like at McCrossin? Yeah, I'll talk through that a little bit. So after after Tom had lunch with me and convinced me that construction was the way to go, I joined as at then an estimator slash PM, but it would be some years before I actually did estimator slash PM work. The first few years, it was very much as a, I would call it a quasi 
field engineer slash foreman slash laborer. Like, I would just be out in the field and doing everything that needed doing to get the job built. Um, I, I did that for a few years, and it was just so valuable to see the work firsthand. Um, oh, and grade checkers. A lot of grade checking, too. Mm-hmm. But to see how, you know, to see how the work actually came together, Charlie McCrossan, who was the founder of the firm, and just a really... Uh, inspirational figure in my career. He he said, Eric, old boy, we, you know, we build them in the day and we bid them at the night and you have to know how to do both. And, and he worked. I mean, he was, he was the example of this, this business. He just built up literally from scratch on his own. And he was there seven days a week and he was, he was just constantly thinking about the business, working on the business. And, and, um, that was the example he said, he knew everything about the business. So like my exposure from that field kind of foreman and engineer position, it, it eventually would evolve to more of a true estimator slash PM. I then would graduate to like senior project manager, contract manager, I became a design build leader, a proposal manager. Eventually, when I my last position at McCrossin was chief estimator, but I got to just see this whole life cycle, Aaron, from from the cradle to the grave, everything that went into a heavy construction project. And you know, from McCrossin's perspective, that was a self perform of of everything. It was with removal, surface removals, and earthwork, and crushing, and aggregates and the pit and plant components and self-performed bridges and structures and piling and utilities, traffic control, concrete paving, asphalt paving. It was really, there was the only kind of scope that was on almost every heavy civil job uh, was an electrical scope that McCrossin didn't self-perform, but everything else they self-performed and just to, just to figure out how to be in that environment. And it, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, it was lean innovation every day, all day before I even know what that term meant. Trying to do all these self-performed activities, you know, in the least amount of time and cost as possible. Like that is the practice today we call lean, but then it just was, this was our job. That's what you do. Yeah. It was a great, it was just a great environment to learn in. Do you think you can, do you think someone can estimate construction projects effectively if they haven't experienced how they're actually built? No. 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 You can get close. And especially, you know, if a firm has a, is really, organizationally disciplined about, you know, historical cost info, historical productivity data, and they have some sort of organized warehouse for that info, then you can, you can get a framework of an estimate built. You can get a skeleton built just by doing that, doing the takeoff and figuring out the quantities and applying some historical, uh, historical averages to it. You can get it close, but then to, to win, you know, you need a wrinkle and you can only come up with a wrinkle 
if you can get at how it's actually going to be built and what's the right sequence and what are the right means and methods. And mm-hmm. so you, you can get a, you can get a framework built and you can't go win a job. I don't think without a, without a wrinkle yeah. and that wrinkle, that wrinkle necessarily depends on the, on that construction background, the field background. I, I, I would have to agree there. Um, I figured, you know, with your experience, you'd be the perfect one to speak to that that subject. Uh, the only the only thing I know about Macrossan, I've just driven past them a bunch because we work with Vite up there. Sure. And so you, you like driving anywhere in the Twin Cities area, you're gonna drive through a Macrossan site. I feel like. You bet. At, or either them or Ames. I mean, they're really the two that do all the highway work out there. And. So I've driven past their sites and all I really know about them is that they, they decal their equipment like Caterpillar. However, it's Macrossan, not cat on the sticker. Yeah. Right. It's the funny I've, they're the only company that I've ever seen do that. So the sticker like on the, on the boom of an excavator, cat excavator, it looks just like a cat sticker, but instead of saying cat, it says Macrossan on it. It's cool. It's really cool. I really, yeah. I really appreciate it. But that's all I know about them. Yeah, and I mean, Charlie. Now he passed away a few years ago, but he did ingrain that. He ingrained that just care for the equipment, pride in the equipment, really a lot of loyalty and dedication to the Cat brand, and he ingrained that throughout the firm. And so, yeah. But uh, I yeah. think that continues there today. So how, how do you go to Mortensen? I mean, if you're, you're, you're on the executive leadership path at Macrossan by the sounds of it, you're chief estimator. I mean, you are, that's, that's inner circle territory after a lot of years. So what, what, why jump over to a general contractor with not much civil work at the time? Right. I was thinking, I was always antsy. I was always antsy never just uh, settled and content with the status quo, always searching, you know, and striving. And I, I just wanted to have a bigger, like a bigger ocean to swim around in. I want to have a bigger platform to play in. And I thought Morrison would provide that. The, um, at the time, the opportunity in wind energy was just, huge. This was back in 2008. The wind energy market was booming. Mortensen was adding a lot of people and they had uh, had an opening for it it was called pre-construction manager. It was very much like the front end proposal management of design build jobs that I had done at Macross. I just love that design build delivery method. There's so much kind of innovation and creativity that would come with that, that there was a similar position at Mortensen, just a wider playing field at the time. Mortensen was operating a lot in the U S and Canada and just struck me as a bigger market and maybe a bigger opportunity, you know, than just in the twin cities Metro. So I wanted to, wanted to see the world a little bit and travel a little more. And that all that stuff happened. I, I went over to Mortensen in 2008. I stayed really close friends with the Macross and Tom Macross and you know is still to this day one of my best friends a really close 
mentor. He's been a great advisor to me throughout my career. And it, it was really fun. We were able to do some things together, you know, as Macross and Ann Mortensen in joint venture. And um, I feel I feel really happy that we could could make that connection, make that relationship go on. So that that's been fun. Um, but yeah, Mortensen, we I started out in the Wind Group. I was there a little while, and I just saw this opportunity on the Wind Jobs uh, for the Civil Scope. There's a really a pretty serious civil infrastructure scope on the Wind Jobs. That Mortensen and probably most of the other wind contractors had been subbing out. And I just thought this is this is a really big opportunity. It could I mean not to mention the margin that those subcontractors were making, but also the the ability to control quality and safety and schedule the control that can come with the self perform work. I just thought it was huge. So I started lobbying that Mortensen ought to be self-performing that civil work. I said, I, I know how to do this. I know how to estimate this. I know what are the right people we need and the right equipment we need, and let us do this. And I started writing, and this was probably late 08, early 09. Uh, but I started writing white papers and lobbying the bosses, like the... COO and the CEO, I had to make a lot of pitches to. I probably did, you know, 30 or 40 practice estimates um, and a ton of market research just trying to figure out that scope. And I think ultimately in late 2010, after a couple of years of doing these practice estimates and lobbying, finally the COO just said, Eric, shut the hell up and just do it. We're, we're so sick of you talking about this. Just go do it. Get this out of your system and let's see what happens. Was so we had a we, were, oh, go ahead, Aaron. Was Mortensen doing any civil work at that time? No, no. I think this was the first instance. I think this was certainly the first instance of self-perform earth work. Uh, back in the day, Mortensen had dabbled had dabbled certainly in some bridge construction. You know, had had done in the the heavy group. You know, like 40 years ago, there was a heavy group at Mortensen that did a lot of um, oh, cast in place concrete, both at power plants and at um, like wastewater treatment plants, heavy industrial type projects. But this certainly would have been the first instance of, of earthwork. And I mean, at the time, Mortensen was no slouch. This was a 10 figure business. Oh, yeah. Building oh, all sorts of stuff oh, yeah. across the entire United States but not doing earthwork. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So probably then, you know, not quite to the level that Mortensen is today, but still, certainly in the late, you know, 2008, 2009 range, still probably in our top 30 or top 25, kind of a builder, $3 billion a year back then. Yeah. Revenue today, it's more like in our top 15 and $5 billion in annual revenue, but a big, big firm. A big, big firm, and that I think has been really good at diversification here over the last decade. So that even if they grew up for their first sixty years, predominantly a vertical, you know, predominantly a vertical builder in these regional markets, the operating groups were predominantly just, you know, geographic offices that concentrated on vertical construction buildings in their region. 
Yes. That was what made Morrison. That's how they grew up. That's the that's the GC that you're thinking of. And I think over the last decade, Morrison's been really good at diversifying that mix and getting into new markets and and now have these besides those, you know, regional geographic offices that that kind of remain a mainstay, remain just a core of the business. These industry groups that, that travel across the country focusing on a specific industry and and really getting to be experts in it. And it's wind and solar and civil and power are kind of these energy and infrastructure groups. And then there's three other national groups that are, are getting pretty well known for more incentive um, sports and federal contracting and data centers are the other kind of national groups. Gotcha. So, so they said, you know, all right, just, just shut up. You know, here's an excavator. You go move the dirt for, for a, a, a wind job. You got it. Yeah. It was in Dempsey, Oklahoma, like red dirt, red dirt, a lot of shale. And that was the first job we did. And yeah, we, we rented the iron from Warren cat, uh, rented most of the iron from Warren cat. And we found, uh, soup and a foreman and hired some craft and we trained some craft, you know, that were probably working on the concrete side of the business. We trained them on the dirt side and just started, started recruiting really heavy. And that, that job went awfully well. It spawned into the next year, you know, three more jobs that were kind of on a, on a trial basis, pilot projects, if you will. Uh, like one was in California, one was in Montana and one was in Nevada. Did you have to bid so, these jobs? All over. No, nope. Okay. Not really. Not, not really. Not yeah. those first, not those first three. I mean, it was all working internally for Morrison. And when we were in that honeymoon, in that honeymoon pilot phase, we were trying to just figure out how to do it. We had to make estimates to make sure we were competitive with the market. But then those first few, we just got to do and try and get ourselves in the market. I mean, going forward, once we became an official operating group in 2012, well, then we had to, we did have to bid everything. But yeah, it was almost as if an internal, internal subcontractor bidding against other, um, other civil contractors to try and win that civil scope of the work for Mortensen. Really? Had, uh, yeah. So you're yep. not, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which I like. I, I do a lot that's of That's the best way to do it because then it keeps you guys accountable and you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's, you know, you want your business to be sustainable just like you the bet. greater Mortensen is. So if they're giving you a break just to win the work, what's the point? It screws everybody. It's counterintuitive. But in the yeah, early days, yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot of risk for Mortensen, though, was there? Because they needed the civil, I mean, other than pissing off their civil partners, but there wasn't much risk there, was there? Um, no, that that was one of the big ones, though, is alienating, you know, alienating those civil subs that had been working with Mortensen at that point for about a decade. Yeah. How are we going to come in and and so perform the work and would, I mean, would Morrison consider those external bids fairly? Were they going to give us an unfair advantage? And, 
that was certainly a concern for the first few years. I think, you know, contractors figured out after a few years that if they, if they were low and if they had the best value and if they had a good approach, they'd still win the work and that they would keep on bidding to more intent. We still, we, the civil group still win, uh, the lion's share of the work, predominant, uh, predominant share of all the wind work at Morrison. Our civil group does it, but huh. yeah, that's been, it's been a really, it's been a really cool market. And I think a lot, um, a lot probably bigger scope than most folks realize. Maybe in the early days, a typical project would be five to 10 million of civil scope. Now it's 20 to 30 million almost all the time because the the scope has become quite a bit more complicated turbines are a lot larger all the good sites are taken with and and so now that you know wind farms are being developed on a lot more a lot more drastic terrain a lot more earth moving scope and also now with the larger turbines come larger cranes you know there's thousand ton cranes that are erecting these turbines and they're not made for walking around farm fields and, you know, through pastures. So you have to really build quite a highway corridor for them to, to walk from site to site around the wind farm. So, so that, that's the scope has grown quite a bit. Yeah. So that's what the civil scope on a wind farm project looks like. It's, it's the foundation of the actual windmills themselves. You can't just build them on shit. You got to make a really solid foundation for them. Correct. And then you bet. And then it's all the roadway infrastructure to get to yep. these windmills to assemble to 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 get the blades and everything back there because the blades themselves are enormous. And then yep. get the cranes back there to assemble these damn things. And then assuming all that's big enough, you know, then you need to get back there and service it every once in a while. So that's is that really the bulk of the civil scope is is just a lot of pioneering access roads that kind of thing. You bet. Yeah. Yep, you bet. A lot of access roads, uh, access roads, crane travel path, crane paths, and then everything at the turbine site in what we call the erection area, which is about, uh, call it a 200-foot radius from the center of the tower out to the limits of disturbance. Everything inside that 200-foot radius has to be leveled up and graded, um, you know, plus or minus. 2%, you know, usually coming at a negative 2% from the center pin of the turbine out to the limits of disturbance. And so that we can accommodate deliveries, we can accommodate the crane assembly, we can accommodate, you know, just the cranes having a spot big enough and stable enough to pick from. And then, uh, let's see, yeah, the crane travel path to and from the turbines is a really big scope. And another one that you know, isn't unique to the wind industry, but it has become way more prevalent on civil jobs. It's just stormwater management. Mm-hmm. I think in the infancy, the infancy of the wind market, the jobs were so remote and so rural and had such low visibility that just stormwater, stormwater pollution prevention, stormwater planning wasn't a big element of it. And it was, there was kind of a, just a, cowboy mentality of the work and get in and get out fast before anyone even knew we were there and there wasn't a lot of focus on SWIP 
And today there really is. I think that that has just come leaps and bounds with how good we are today at SWIP compared to when we started. It is the you just have to appreciate the irony there though, because you go out to a, a gas line job or a coal mine and it is insanely protected. And there are so many rules as far as contamination and those guys go above and beyond to protect everything. And in the early days right. of, of wind farms or solar farms, you just blow and go. It doesn't matter. Yep. And it's just the irony there is, is it's, I've always found it fascinating because it's a clean form of energy. You can do whatever you want to the environment to get it in there. And it's like, well, hold on here. So it's good that it's in a better spot because I, I knew it was not in an all that responsible place to begin with. Yeah, it's going up. It's the, you know, both wind and solar have just evolved a lot, matured a lot. The, the industries are now, they're established in a way that they, they weren't. It was the wild west, right? Right when we were starting out. And Martinson, I think, was, you know, through some luck and through some foresight and good strategy there on the front end of both of them. And, and now the pretty established player in both. Yeah. And it's a, so it's a, what, what's so appealing about playing in those markets? Because it's a very small community. And so I can't really just start up a contractor or even be an existing big contractor and just bid on a solar farm job. It doesn't really work that way. What's, I mean, what, why did they like to, what, what, why do they like to play in those two places? Yeah, right. Um, there's a lot, I would say, Aaron, there's a lot of different, I don't know, there's a lot of different expertise required that comes together in those markets for Mortensen, like really good positioning and business development and project development. It's all, you know, all private customers or if not private money, at, just, at least the deregulated arm of, you know, public utilities. Mm-hmm. Nextera, for instance, is the deregulated arm of solar power and light, and there's a number of a number of customers like that. We will work both for you know for utility companies, for independent power producers, and for um, you know, just for developers who have ultimately will will sell these facilities. But I think to develop those relationships like you do with a private customer, like Morton's really good at, and the rest of their business, that's been an attractant. I think the pure EPC nature of these, so maybe even like an element beyond design build in the, in the power market, it's referred to as EPC, you know, engineering, procurement, and construction, where Morton has, has just total control from cradle to grave. Of, of of every element, and that's a it's a lot to that's a lot to take on, and it's probably a skill set that not that many contractors have. And then I think also coupled just with this this technical expertise, like it the technical expertise in um, in wind farm construction is a lot about turbine direction that for Mortensen morphed from this former heavy industrial division that was really good at millwright work and steel work and like heavy lift 
heavy crane and rigging type of operations. And Mortensen had that, um, had that expertise in house and was able to translate it and transfer it into the wind market and then add some of, some more of those wind scope elements along the way with that turbine erection and heavy lift uh, expertise as the anchor and then adding in civil, adding in power, things like the electrical collection and distribution lines around the job. Mortensen's added that expertise and now can just do the whole, the whole scope self-performed in-house. It's a good, it's a good situation. It's pretty amazing. And that's, you know, the most successful contractors I've come across, they find what they're good at and they stick to it and they find those markets that not everybody can play in. And, and there's a barrier to entry to get into the market to begin with. And that's, that's when you can do really, really damn well. Um, so I guess to summarize on the Mortensen end before we get into other stuff, you, you basically start <clears throat> saying, hey, we can self-perform this, this dirt work ourselves. They give you a shot. And now over a decade or so, you've grown this whole thing into an absolute monster within Mortensen. I mean, it's a small business as far as Mortensen's concerned, but it's a, it's a, a big deal overall, as far as the civil construction company is concerned. I mean, it's, yeah. How many people do you guys have there? Um, you know, at, at peak in the middle of summer, Aaron, we're, we'd be up to 700 people or so. And that's about a hundred, that's about a hundred salaried or supervisory folks and about 600 craft. That's where we'd be at peak and doing, you know, 250 million in revenue or so. So it has, it has grown up to be quite, quite a big business. We work all across the country and, you know, I talk about iron. We were talking earlier about cat and how fun it is to deal with the iron, but it's, it's about people. Like what makes us go is both our supervisory people and their willingness and ability to travel. And then our craft travelers, our craft traveler program, I think is just fantastic. And that's, we couldn't make any of this go without them they are our they're they're our advantage and and so that's the reality of these projects is that you guys are willing to go anywhere in the united states to build them and 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 with that people need to travel so what is that what does that look like how do you guys not burn people out because that's probably the trickiest part of all of this and that's a it's a science that not many companies have mastered. If any company has mastered, how do you guys make sure that people are willing to travel long-term without getting burnt out? Too bad. It, it is a trick. And I wouldn't say we have it mastered, but we're, I think we're really intentional about what the program is up front. And if people know exactly what to expect, you know, um, they know exactly what's going to be their time on the job. They're on the job for about three weeks and then they have a rotation every month. So they're on for three weeks, off for one, on for three weeks, off for one. Okay. And, and that's kind of the, the cycle that they, that they go through. Sometimes that, sometimes that like one week off is a little shorter in a, in the heart of the summer. And like sometimes in the winter, it's a little longer. Our, a lot of our travelers will take, you know, basically from December through March 
they're basically off. They're, I mean, they're monkeying around a little bit with staying in touch with the jobs, planning for the jobs, but that is a big time to recharge in December through March. We don't, don't have too many jobs going. We might have a couple in the South and the American Southwest going during that time, but that's a, that's a recharge time. But I think just having this really intentional structure about the traveler program, exactly what are the traveler benefits and bonuses. Uh, it isn't just like a typical civil business that revolves around, uh, like a center, like McCrossin, you know, and McCrossin is like most of the vast majority of civil companies are, um, operate within, you know, a 50 or a hundred mile radius of their headquarters. They have their, they might have pits and plants, um, that are local equipment and people that are local a lot of their people go home and sleep in their own beds every night and so this this infrastructure to travel isn't even a consideration of their business well for us it's everything and so we have you know especially especially with our open shop travelers different classifications and tiers uh that they can graduate to so like key travelers, A travelers, B travelers, C travelers, and then just, you know, local hires who we might find near a job and is to come on for that job. And after trying it out, they might decide they want to travel with us and can work their way up that ladder. But I think just have that visibility, have the transparency of here's what traveling is. Here's the bonuses you get. Here's the time off you're going to get. But Part of, I mean, part of getting those perks, part of getting those benefits is you might be, you might be on a job in North Carolina one week and finish up that job and you're going to a job in Arizona or in Texas the next week. Like mm. it is a very nomadic lifestyle and the people have to know that up front and know that they're either okay or not okay with that. If that doesn't appeal to them, this isn't the business for them. That is the one thing about civil work is a GC can in theory make a lot of hundreds of millions in one geographic region, especially in big cities like a Skanska in Manhattan, for example. I mean, they can do billions of dollars just in Manhattan. The, the thing with civil contractors is once they get over, like, I don't know if you want to go over a hundred million dollars a year in revenue, it's, increasingly difficult to stay in one place I found. So most yeah, contractors right. that are, it's like that nine figure range. If you want to go into that world, you can have a really nice business under nine figures, making a ton of money in one region, but it's very difficult to stay in one region. If you want to get much bigger than that. I think that's right. I think that's right. Traveling's hard though. It's really hard. And you know, what this last year has shown us, maybe even more than in the past, is how hard it is to maintain that connection with your travelers who are out on the road and the internal communication and just the sense of community and the culture that we want to cultivate to, to maintain that when everyone is remote. It's, it's hard. It's, um, you have to concentrate on it. it doesn't, that doesn't just happen. No, and I feel like a lot of companies, they, they think it does just happen. And like I've always criticized a lot of people, you know, for their annual Christmas party saying that's culture. And it's like, no, that's, that's, that's not culture. I mean, culture is really a, it's an everyday 
battle, especially when you're as fragmented as you guys are. And a lot of these companies going remote now, I think are going to hurt because they're not built to create that culture with a remote workforce. And it takes a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of time to reinforce values, to train people, to form a sense of belonging when everybody is remote. At least that's what I found with our own business. Right. Yeah. Right. And we, um, we think about that every day, all day, you know, you met, you met our internal communication pro Ariel. She just, she is dedicated to just, that's her job. She brings our people together. She's an internal communications specialist and she's really, really good. And she helps keep me and the other business leaders kind of on task and in touch with our project teams. We don't, you mean, you joined us for an all hands meeting here a month or two ago and it was really well received. And we just try to do that. We try to do that every month. Um, and just to make that connection and build that, build that culture. And it's not just in one spot. So we have, you know, we have all hands meetings. We have internal social media, internal website, newsletter, a lot of team building stuff. I mean, that is your, that's your, um, that's the lifeblood, that culture that you create. That's the thing that you have. That's the thing you have that the people are going to come and want to work for and uh, build their career in. That's the thing you have. That's that's your, um, I don't know. That's the competitive advantage. If you can, if you can have a place where people want to work and are really excited to come to work and they really feel connected and they feel included and they feel like the, the business is going places. If you can inspire that, that that's everything. Anyone can get equipment, Aaron. It's, um, yeah, it's trying to inspire that connection, which is, uh, which is a trick and it's hard work, man. It's hard. Well, it's, it's interesting that you guys have such a, uh, you guys stress so much the internal communication piece because that's what, when we're explaining what we do for these companies and our partners, that's, that's really the biggest piece of it is we help these companies communicate more effectively internally. And it's hard to sell that because it's hard to assign an ROI on it. You know, external marketing is a lot more flashy and sexy because you can actually point to, yeah, we won this job or we hired these people. But the internal piece is what I think the most important part of all of it. And I, I mean, that's where a lot of my time goes now is communicating internally with our business and making sure everybody's on the same page. It's vital. Yeah. It, it is just vital. And to have, um, I don't know, to have a, a business that's going to sustain and some people that are going to stay and build their career and a culture where people want to work, you have to, you have to work on it and you have to, you have to kind of be consistent too. like with the culture you're trying to create. It can't just be kind of random, rapid fire all over the board of different flavor of the month. We, a few years ago, really tried to try to be intentional, be specific about what was our culture. What do we want to come through? If people are going to 
you know, use words to describe our culture. What are those words? Yeah. And we came up with, um, we came up with FERC, which is kind of corny. It's kind of cheesy, but it's fun, ethics, results, kindness. And if we just, it wasn't what we wanted to be. It was like, try to describe what we are. Because um, Mortensen has been doing it for a lot of years, these team member surveys company-wide, and to try and just gauge the team member engagement and people's, you know, satisfaction in their career and how happy they are at work. And Mortensen's been really good about surveying that with their people and getting the pulse of the people. And our civil group had had performed really well in those team member engagement surveys. And so we were trying to figure out why and put our finger on it. And um, that's what we, that's what we came up with. Those were the, like the trademarks of what we were trying to build fun, ethics, results, kindness. And I mean, not hard values to get behind and rally around, but that's um, kind of the, kind of the theme we try to roll with. Uh, and we, so we, we, we come in to a lot of our partners and, and we do what we call branding session. And that, you know, that's a big piece of it is, all right, what can we, let's, let's put your guys' culture into words. And that's what all these companies have not done. They have not summarized it like that and explained what the values of the organization are. Now we were lucky because we got to identify what our values were from day one. And so that's how we've shaped our culture is we've said, Hey, this is what's most important to us as a business. And we've driven that into our business every chance we can get. So our culture is a direct representation of our values. And I talk about them all the time, but it's, you know, it's make decisions. It's be the example. It's all there's, I don't know, there's like eight of them, I think. I don't know how many, how many there are, but they're, they're, they're the first thing we talk about with new hires. And that is where everything starts from. A lot of construction businesses have never done that. So we take some time to sit down and be like, okay, we don't have these values. So how do you explain the culture of your business to a new hire or to someone outside of the business? We need to summarize this. So let's talk about the phrases, the words that describe you guys and what's most important to you guys. And so we can explain it. Um, and, and so that it, it, what you guys did is exactly what we do with any one of the companies we work with. That's the very first thing is, all right, let's put your culture, your values, your business as a whole into words that anyone could understand. Yeah. And it takes a while to get there. I, I especially feel like, you know, new leaders in the engineering and construction business they want to go first to strategy. They want to go first to technical. They want to go first to let's make a product that flies off the shelves and not let's build a culture of happy, engaged team members. Because that's not the typical engineering mindset. No. Their, their mindset goes first to strategy and second to culture. But like as you know, culture is way more important than strategy, especially in engineering construction. 
where very few firms just have a product that flies off the shelves. Almost all the firms are offering something similar. Well, until you have to figure out a, a differentiator, you know, but, and, and it's so obvious, but a lot of companies don't put any, any, um, stress on it whatsoever. So it's like, you know, they're struggling to find people and it's like, well, of course you're struggling to find people because you're no different than any, everybody else. You're no different. Oh, wow. You have this cool fleet. Like, okay. So does the other guy. Oh, you have GPS. Okay. So does the other, like they all have what you have. You are not giving me any significant reason to go to work for you over the other guy. Oh, you're, you're, you've been the most successful contractor for 50 years. I don't care. I'm 26. I don't care how long you've been around. That does nothing for me. I want to know, you know, what's special about your business and the companies yeah. that are doing that are the ones that are going to dominate everybody else. Because as a young person, that's where I want to work. I want to work for a company that's different. I want to work for more than just a paycheck. I want to know why I should go to work there. I have a lot of options. So them providing me a job is not enough. And until the industry understands that, until these companies understand that, they're going to continue to hurt for people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the, um, you know, really the builder of Mortensen, Mort Mortensen, he passed away a couple of years ago. He was an amazing man. He was light years ahead of his time in terms of how to, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a servant leader, and and really build culture before strategy. And he focused on, you know, genuine humility and empathy as kind of the, the hallmarks of his leadership style, creating a culture of caring. And he this was, you know, 30 years ago. Like, Mort Morrison had it figured out and really what a great just a great uh, role model for us to to emulate and that, like the words he put in the words he used a lot to try and have to be the culture that Morrison focused on was a culture of zero injuries a culture of exceptional customer experience a culture of stewardship and community involvement and like and no one could just work there without without knowing that's what Morrison stood for. So he was really a really set the tone, and that that continues today with the current the current leadership structure at Morrison. Do you guys, as far as culture, safety, tech, and I want to get to tech in a sec, but you bet. Do you guys think you're further along because of that marriage to a GC? Because that is the one thing I will give GCs. I don't. We've talked about on this podcast and I am increasingly vocal about it. <clears throat> There's a lot of problems with GCs and their mentality and they drive me absolutely nuts. Absolutely nuts because most of them, they're, they're just, they're so rude and I don't understand why they're entitled, but I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I do need to give them some credit because they're very, they're way further ahead than in a lot of regards than civil contractors, as far as treating people right, as far as proper safety culture is concerned, as far as recruiting is concerned, they are just, they just seem more buttoned up and intelligent. So, and, and I can't say all GCs 
are the worst. There are a lot of fantastic GCs out there. Mortensen's one of the one that I actually respect quite a bit. Do you, but do you, as a civil contractor, do you think you guys are elevated and are further along because of that bond with a general contractor? 100% Aaron, we, we're really, um, we're really intentional about, you know, every year writing the business plan and, um, sticking to our business plan and thinking about where the business wants to go. Uh, what new markets are we going to go into that? And we talk a lot and think a lot about our competitive advantage and that that's everything. The fact that we're, the fact that we're Mortensen, well, that's nearly impossible to copy. And if you want a bona fide competitive advantage, you have to have something that another firm can't copy. Yeah. And, and that is our main thing that no one else, certainly no other civil firm could copy is that, you know, we have access because of the Mortensen brand and reputation and relationships and position in some of these really niche markets that it, it, that's a combo that, that really makes us and we know it and we, we cherish it. We leverage it. We think about it every day. It's everything here. You put, you hit the nail on the head. We, we are light years ahead of where we would be just as a, as a startup on our own, you know? No, I, I agree. And I'm not, I'm not pandering. I mean, I, I do think, cause I have been out to some Mortensen civil sites and it is just immediately evident that, okay, these guys are different. Like it just feels different. It feels more refined. It feels more thought out. It feels more buttoned up. And, and it's like, well, are these guys really a civil contractor? And you look at their scope work, you're like, yeah, they're doing civil work, but they don't, you don't, I guess they, you don't feel like a typical civil contractor in a good way. Like you're still a civil contractor, but I think these civil contractors need to become more buttoned up in a lot of different ways. And I think you guys are doing a good job of that. And going to, yes, the going to, going from that, technology is a really big part of your guys' business. And that's another reason why I have a lot of respect for you, for Mortensen Civil uh, because of how you guys adopt and utilize technology. And you've come up on a previous Dirt Talk episode where when I talked to Built Robotics, because you are on their advisory board, what what is the role in technolo- that technology will play long-term in the civil construction space? You bet. It's huge. And we, we have to be different. We have to be different because, you know, we don't have that 50 year history of a, a local plant and pit and resources that are going to set us apart or make a product that flies off the shelves. We have to be different. So we, that we focused on, we focused on culture and we focused on innovation and advanced technology. And I think, our goals from advanced technology are a little bit, they're a little bit about, you know, like the obvious, reducing the, the time and cost of construction. That's obvious. But there's some other you know, kind of more indirect and probably more important goals that we think about, um, like equipping our people with the tools they're going to need for the construction side of the future. And 
exploring ways to deal with the looming labor shortage, especially for us. We work in these remote areas way out in the boondocks away from where people want to live and work. So how are we going to attract the best and brightest of those spots? Well, we have to be able to, to make their jobs easier. We have to make their jobs more fun, more interesting and easier. And so it's like tech plays a big, a big part in that. Um, I think also, you know, attracting the next generation of management and leaders, those construction pros aren't going to want to work in an old school industry. Like they want to work with, with space age tech, next generation tech. And if they just view construction as a stodgy old school industry with no leaps in innovation, well, they don't want to work in that kind of industry. So like almost as a recruiting and retention tool, we see tech is really important. And then finally, like maybe the more, the more nerdy sciencey thing is just how do we, how can we de- design these construction sites and develop protocols for how humans and robots can work together and coexist safely on the job sites in the future. Like we have to figure that out because there's simply in five and especially 10 years, there's not going to be enough humans in our industry to do the work. We have to somehow leverage tech to get done the amount of infrastructure that needs building and fixing. Yes. Yes. And I, I, so I, and I, I agree with that. It's, you know, the, the, Labor shortage is a very complex issue and people and myself included love to oversimplify it. And I think it has to attack, be attacked by a few fronts. You know, obviously we need to shift perceptions, educate people about the industry, educate people about how important infrastructure is to them. But then the other side of the coin is we need to attack it from the becoming more efficient front too. Because if we can become more efficient, then we don't need as many people doing this. We're still always going to need people doing it, but in a in a uh, like a a wind farm construction application, like you guys live in, digging trench for power cable, not all that complicated, and there is a lot of it. So I understand the appeal of trying to automate that. Well, okay we're going to let this robot excavator dig this trench or this power cable that's miles long while our talented operators are going to go grade this complex radius in this road to figure out how we get this damn crane in. I, 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 I really understand both sides of the coin. You bet. You bet. And to, I mean, to reserve those operators' talents that can actually that can actually finish and match, you know, a proposed grade, match a proposed grade into the existing ground and use their model to get them started, but then have the artwork to match it into the surrounding terrain. A robot can't do that. That's that's judgment. That's um, finesse. A robot can't do that. A robot's never going to be able to do that. And, And like, from what I can see and from what I can tell, and I've been, working a lot with built and thinking a lot about this problem. And in the best case, if you can have robots be, you know, on our future sites, like, like a pump, like a water pump. If you, 
if you pull up to where there's some standing water on a job site or you have to do some like casual dewatering and like a worker, one of our, one of our craft workers can pull up there and fuel up the pump and start up the pump and then let it go and let it work. And then they can go do something else with their day. Like in the best case, that's a robot that you can fuel up the robot and start up the robot and say, and let it be like a pump and let it do its work while you can go do more high, you know, higher value things. That is the idea. It makes sense. I, I understand why people don't like that concept because there is that very human fear of being replaced, but that's not what's happening here. And if you do implement these robots effectively, everybody's wages increase, which makes perfect sense as well. And, and at a good company, you know, some companies could exploit that to get cheaper. Uh, but at a good company, you know, everyone's wages, the talented operators, they're only going to become more valuable. And now that you don't need as many people out there, you're able to pay more. Yeah. And the people are, I mean, the people are going to be vital to the equation. The robots aren't just going to drive themselves to the site and hop off a low boy and go do the work they're supposed to do. Like they have to be exactly programmed by people. So we feel like our, if our people are equipped with how that tech works and how to deploy it, they're just in a better spot. They're in a better spot to be construction pros than our people who don't have that training. Yeah. And this goes, this goes back to, I, I, I don't know where I heard it, but I heard, Jack Ma, who is the guy that runs Alibaba, a really, really big company in China. And and, he's, yeah. and and he was asked, you know, what are you teaching your kids? Are you teaching them computer programming? And And he said, no, absolutely not. I'm teaching them how to be creative. I'm teaching them how to use instruments. I'm teaching them how to do art. Because the coding and computers... That is something that humans are going to be replaced at very, very, very quickly. But the art, the 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 imagination—that's something a, a computer can never do. And, right. and 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 operating equipment is is a beautiful form of artwork, in my opinion. So if you you know want to become a valuable operator, focus on the art of it because it's never going away and a computer is never going to emulate it. But very simple tasks, that is easy to emulate and automate. But that's why I'm so confident about the dirt world is that such a large majority of it is nothing short of artwork. And that is why it's never going away. People in machines will never go away at least in my lifetime and in theory, many lifetimes after that, because there's so there's just so much to it that a human has to do because of that imagination, creativity, artwork factor. Yeah. And, and the complex sequence too, Aaron of, of these variables, like think about a, think about a pipe operation, like some medium to deep pipe and maybe you're dragging a box. Or maybe you're dragging two boxes and put in, put in sewer. Well, okay. Think what that excavator operator has to do. The excavator operator has to fine grade the bottom. They have to nudge along the boxes. They have to shove home the pipe. 
they have to shave along the sidewalls of the excavation so that there's no crumbs or boulders or nuggets are going to fall down on the bottom end in the trench. They got to hook the pipe up on top. And it's not always the same based on where the terrain is and maybe how far back did the loader operator spot the pipe. Like, there's a lot of variables that a robot could never figure out. There's a lot of finesse in there and a lot of just judgment, like spot on judgment. So, like those type of operations, those are always going to be there. But if there's something easy, like turn around a pump and letting it pump, well, let the robot do that. Yeah, it makes sense. But so many people have this mentality of it's either one or the other. It's either humans do it or robots take all the jobs. And it's like, no, 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 it's, 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 it's not either. It's, it's kind of this gray area in between where everybody wins. You're bad. But as I always say, what do I know? I'm just an idiot. Oh, you're on the right track, man. What do I know? Well, this was a pretty comprehensive conversation. A marathon. I do. Did we get you, did we get you any content in here, Aaron? Well, before we wrap up, we've talked about wind and solar. Do you guys, as far as like higher purpose to people's work, do you guys beat that renewable energy drum with your people at all? Less than you would think. Yeah. Less than you would think. Um, I think that for a lot of people, just to even find out about Mortensen, and like an initial recruiting step, I think that's really important to be branded as, you know, a renewable energy contractor and having a sustainable power that's good for the environment. Like people find out about Mortensen because of that. But in terms of, you know, kind of a long-term recruiting, especially retention, it's, it's not that, 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 doesn't go too far like it has to be once they get there and are doing that important work it still has to be like a really good culture a good environment and one thing we didn't talk too much about before but like you mentioned it um what maybe gcs and some of these bigger construction companies do that is different and and probably seem to be more focused on than smaller firms is um, like a focus on diversity and equity and inclusion. And Morrison is just really good. Really. We have a long ways to go on that journey, but really um, a lot of focus there. And that's really important to our people, really important to the, really important to the people we're recruiting and really important to driving that innovation that we talked about earlier. Like if everyone looks the same, talks the same, they're from the same background, they've experienced the same things. Well, guess what you get? All the same ideas. Yep. Zero creativity, zero innovation. And so that besides just being intrinsically the right thing and creating opportunities for these you know, historically underrepresented groups, especially in our industry, like women and people of color have been very underrepresented in construction. Well, guess what? Also, it makes your company better as just this breeding ground for innovation. If you can have diverse ideas, 
and have diverse conversations, guess what? Your company gets better. So I think that that kind of focus is probably more important to us than, than maybe the initial attraction of renewable energy and uh, sustainability. It makes sense. And, and a lot of contractors, they are these good old boy clubs. And if you're not one of the good old boys, good luck. You're not going to make it very far. Um, right. And that just screws everybody. So they've been able to get away with it so far because most companies operate like that still. But these companies that figure out that, hey, the more opinions we have, the more different backgrounds we have, the more perspectives we have, the better we are, these old school companies are just going to get obliterated because if an organization has all people that think the same, you're in a very bad place. And that's, you know, just greater society as a whole. We gravitate toward people that are similar to us with similar backgrounds, similar opinions. And we forget to challenge our thoughts and opinions. And we just like to seek, seek out confirmation of our thoughts and opinions. And that puts us in a very dangerous place because our thoughts and opinions could be completely wrong, but we think that they're right because everyone around us is agreeing with us. So I'm a huge proponent of diverse backgrounds. And that's, I mean, there's all sorts of, it's hiring from different places. It's hiring from different ethnicities. It's hiring from different socioeconomic places. It's, 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 you just want as much diversity as possible and diversity. It's, it's, you know, like what, you know, the big two are women in construction and, and um, just more ethnicities in the industry. But there's a lot more than even that. There's so much different avenues to diversity. And that's a big deal long-term, at least for our business, because I want as many people with as many viewpoints as possible. Yeah, right. And coming full circle, if there's a, if there is a looming labor shortage, both for, you know, construction leaders and also construction craft team members, like you have to go and find different groups that are historically, you know, been underserved and underrepresented in construction. We have to find new avenues of entrance into this industry because it's awesome. Like our industry is awesome. Once people see what we do and can share with their like friends and family and colleagues, what we do and just how amazing it is compared to sitting at a desk and pushing paper. Like this is, we just have to find new, new ways to attract people to our industry. And so I think that focus on diversity is, is going to be a huge key to our business going forward. And, and really, that diversity of thought is going to make all of our businesses better. It's a no brainer, but you have those people that see that as a threat and see people challenging them as a threat. And it's a shame because those people are, they're going to get their ass beat long-term, I think. That's right. So, well, that was, that was, that was a good tangent. Now, the last thing I forgot to bring up was, was you guys don't just do civil work for solar farms, wind farms. You do a lot of data center work right now, correct? Yes. Yep. 
Yep, and that's a new a new frontier. Like there's um there's gonna be a move, I think, you know, towards physical construction that just facilitates the digital commerce, the digital world. There's a book out there called Digital Cathedrals that really just talks about, you know, the the physical built environment that is going to be needed and it's data centers, it's distribution centers, it's e-commerce facilities, but still even to facilitate that e-commerce having to, having to build physical, um, a physical built environment, like data centers, you, a lot of your partners, I think are active in this space are active in this market. And these are big civil jobs. These are, you know, oftentimes on 150 or 200 acre sites, lots of earthwork and soil correction, lots of foundations and utilities and just a, just a big, big market. And so, you know, for us, with our national reach and our ability to travel and our kind of focus on diversity and inclusion and our focus on innovation, well, that, those, values i guess those characteristics are kind of shared by our customers the big customers in that data center space and everyone everyone knows who they are they're the tech the tech giants are our customers in that space and they think about those things a lot of the same way as we do so that um i think Aaron, that'll be as big if not a bigger part of our business going forward than renewable energy but a lot a lot of opportunity there yeah, probably the the biggest earth moving projects I see across the United States right now, beyond you know highways and flood control and that kind of thing, is these enormous building pads for data centers and distribution centers. Yep. So they they you know a lot of people say there's everything's gone online, but yeah, they forget about this enormous physical infrastructure that you need to build to support all of that online stuff and these data centers. I mean. Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, they are monsters, absolute monsters. And then the distribution centers, you know, Amazon and Walmart and and all these just monster online retailers, they're building bigger and bigger and bigger buildings. They're not going, they're not getting any smaller. They're just getting bigger. The schedules are getting more aggressive they're building them on shittier and shittier land because they're running out of land. They're oftentimes building them in the middle of nowhere because that's the best place to put them. It's, it's yep. really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, it's a mega trend and it, like it, it's no, it's no secret. It, you've seen it a lot with your partners. We're seeing it all across the country. This is a, this is a, this is a booming market and um yeah i think it it fits a lot of what we're about so we're really we're really excited about that market yeah it's a it's a big big deal and oh yeah by the way they're also an enormous energy consumer and so that that we're really kind of focused on our ability to provide that by that connection to provide the production of the power and the connection to the power grid to the service we provide. So it's, um, it's a really good market for us. 
actually is pretty slick. And I understand why you guys don't get into the distribution world because that is more of a commodity I've seen. Um, but the data centers are a lot more specialized, particular, refined. Specifications are tighter. It's just a, it's a, it's a more buttoned up type of project and, and, and type of requirements on there that would fit you guys very well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we have a business that is just focused on data centers and just a few of the big, a few of the big customers can keep, you know, our data center business busy with hundreds and hundreds of people. It's, um, it's a big market and it's getting bigger. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything else you want to cover here? I think we, no, I think we nailed it. This was fun. Told you, it's just us talking about cool stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was this was really fun. At least we think it's cool stuff. You bet. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else will think it's cool stuff, but I enjoyed it. That's all that matters. Awesome, I did too. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you giving us some of your Saturday time post uh, Hawaiian vacation. No problem. Thanks, Aaron. All right, and that is uh, that's that. Nice. What's your What's your formal title? Before I forget. I'm vice president and general manager. Okay. Of Mortensen Civil? Yep. Okay. Understood. And that is Aaron Witt's conversation with Eric Selman from Mortensen Civil. Don't have much to share at the end of this episode other than the two things we share each week. First one, we ask that you continue sharing the podcast. This podcast is growing week by week, and it's really exciting to see um, just how many different people this podcast is reaching. So we're very thankful for that. Please just continue sharing. We love it. And the second thing is uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, um, please reach out at dirttalk at buildwit.com. Um, that goes to me, Alex, as well as to Aaron, and we will see your questions, and hopefully we'll get to answer them on the next episode of Dirt Talk. So with that, last thing, later. Later.